Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by BP. BP is advancing a low-carbon future. As BP grew over the last year to meet rising demand for energy, our net operational emissions didn't. They fell. At BP, we see possibilities everywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Well, that's a wrap. The European Parliament has finished its final plenary session of this five-year term. I spent most of the week in Strasbourg, but I wasn't trailing around the corridors of Parliament. I was instead interviewing six candidates for European Commission President at the TV studios of Arte, the multilingual TV station. We're releasing all six interviews on Monday, April 25, so you can binge watch them on politico.eu. And in next week's podcast, we'll feature my interview with the favourite to become Commission President, Manfred Weber. Why will we turn to Weber first? Well, he's running away from the Maastricht presidential debate on April 29 that I'm co-moderating. All of the other parties will be there except for the European Free Alliance, whose candidate is currently in jail in Spain. But what's Weber's excuse? Well, if you can believe it, his team told us he'll be celebrating the 80th birthday party of a political friend in Germany instead of turning up for his job interview in front of the European public. I personally pleaded with Weber on Tuesday to change his mind after our head-to-head interview. I'll keep trying. Don't be afraid to say what you think about his choice online. But enough talk about people who aren't showing up. Let's focus instead on some people who did show up to Politico's latest election debate. Coming up next is a three-way discussion about what betting companies, opinion pollsters and journalists can tell us about election campaigns and results. Joining me for this discussion are Cornelius Hirsch, co-founder of Poll of Polls, now with Politico, Eleni Vavitsioti, the Brussels correspondent of Greek newspaper Kathy Marini, and Matthew Shaddock, head of political betting at Ladbrokes. So my question is, um, what are your top sources of intelligence when you arrive at the judgments that you arrive at for the European Parliament elections? Matthew, you kick it off. So this is kind of an experiment for us, having odds on every single state, because I, our team don't know very much about Slovenian politics, to be honest, or Maltese politics. So we'll start with opinion polls, some fairly simple maths, which can give you a, an expected probability of which parties might win, because at the moment the only odds we're offering on the individual countries are which individual party will win the most seats in that country and that will start off the odds to begin with and then it's really just a question of the supply and demand of our customers if more money is going on one particular party so for instance the other night I saw a rush of bets on the pirate party in the Czech Republic to win the most seats then their odds come down as a result and it's very little about our opinion it's more just to do with the to and fro of the market. Mm -hmm. Now 
Eleni, you are uh, sort of hopefully have been watching the summit very closely as well. Yes, so exactly. I know leaders are one source of knowledge for you. How else are you kind of tuning your dial when it comes to the election? I mean, for me, it's the challenge is to make my readers been interested in the European politics, which is pretty hard. And for this EU elections, uh, maybe it's even harder because it might coincide with the national elections in my country. So you have to find a, an interesting way to tell your readers who are these people, who are these groups that they are representing, and why is it so important for you? And that, I can tell you, it's, it has been quite a challenge because it's minimum interest. It's really sad to see that people are like really interested in their national politics and the European agenda is second or third rate uh, news for us. Mm -hmm. Now, Cornelius, you use opinion polling as a source. How does your algorithm work? Like, how do you balance the fact that there aren't that many polls about specifically the European Parliament election, but there's a bunch of national polls? So, yeah, that's the, the biggest challenge for us, the lack of data in certain countries. But... We're really agnostic about all the polls. So we take we take all national polls and we take all European Parliament specific polls from each country and t try to come up with a seed estimate for each country. And yeah, if there aren't any, then we have to use certain proxies, right? I mean, we went back to 2014 and compared the difference between the national polls days, like one day before the European Parliament election and looked at the difference and saw that in a lot of countries, there's not a structural difference. And if there aren't any polls in some countries, like in Luxembourg, for example, then we just have to use like the last election result to come up with proxy for the seat calculation. Maybe a general question that any of you can feel free to answer. How have you seen your judgments change during the course of the campaign? I mean, we're only really getting into the heat of the election campaign now, but people have been talking about this or selecting candidates or running polls for a few months. Have your judgments changed at all over that time about what's going to happen at the end of May? There's one sort of bias in the betting markets, in European betting markets recently, which is people who are betting their money tend to overestimate how well the populist right is going to do in elections. Mm -hmm. We sort of saw that in the Netherlands, in Norway, in Sweden, in their recent national elections. So I've kind of been waiting for that to happen with these elections, and it hasn't really yet. So there doesn't seem to be that much confidence that any of these parties in countries like the ones I've just mentioned, that they might overtake the more established parties and win the most seats... So at the moment, it does seem like we're more likely to get, based on the betting, big establishment traditional parties doing well. And I'm still waiting for that surge in support for right-wing parties. And that may, that may happen much nearer the election, mm -hmm. because most of the bets we take will probably be in the last week. Uh, but so far, no sign. Mm -hmm. And Eleni, are we all still in the shadow of the bailout in Greece? Or is there some other factor that's changing the dynamic there? I mean, because it's going to be with the national elections, it's like a, a big thing. There is a possibility that it's going to be with the national elections. But I, I will agree with Matthew a lot. I mean, when we started, when the, let's say, we started following the elections more closely, let's say in the fall, there was this expectation that the populists are going to do so much better, the Eurosceptics are going to be so important in the parliament. And as time goes by, you don't see them kicking off. So that is a thing that it was important to follow. And in Greece, yeah, definitely now the biggest parties are all pro-European. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So the Euroscepticism is much less, especially also if, if you think about after so many years of crisis, still Greeks are so pro-European. I mean, there's no doubt about the membership of the country. I think when you say like what has changed over the course, it's definitely the new alliances that have sh uh, like shaped up a little bit. And I think all I can do all the seed calculations I want every day if then certain leaders or suddenly certain parties form alliances that we didn't see coming or hopefully we, we in order that we don't track at the moment.
then a lot of the math can be completely wrong. Yeah. Now, w one thing I didn't see coming when I started working on this election campaign was the idea that Britain might be voting in it. <laughs> so I, I don't want to drag us into a big Brexit discussion, but obviously that could shake up the race a little bit. What would each of you predict as your sort of major impact if the Brits actually do end up voting? Eleni, maybe you kick it off. If the Brits end up voting, I mean, okay, that will change definitely the seats that are going to be given in the parliament. But I think it could be also like, would give extra interest of what will happen. Some people could see it as a second referendum. Of, I mean, depending on what people will decide in the British elections, it could show like maybe if people have changed their mind about Brexit or not. So that will be an interesting thing to see, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm speaking as one of the very few people in Great Britain who really want these elections to happen. It'd be great for me, <laughs> great for our business. Um, but um, we do have some preliminary odds on what the outcome would be. Okay, tell us, tell us, please. So the Labour Party are favourites to get most seats, but quite yeah. uneasy favourites. And it's now only, I think, two to one that Farage's new Brexit party end mm -hmm. up being the biggest group, which will please some people. And does that mean the Tories are going to get destroyed because you've got the new change UK, the independence yeah, so in the our, mix as well? Our, our odds at the moment would suggest we're predicting around a 20% vote for the Conservative Party. Okay. Now, that's quite plausible because back in 2009, when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, Labour got to 15%. So it's quite easy to see them getting to really quite a low number. Mm -hmm. And there was like a poll published asking exactly that question and I think that the Brexit party was at 10% mm -hmm. and the uh, independence group this change UK uh, party something at only 4%. Okay. So it was still Labour in the lead quite significantly. Mm -hmm. Then maybe I'll put you on the spot with an actual prediction now. The Spitzen candidate race for European Commission President. If you had to say now who you think is going to become the Commission President based on your expertise and all the knowledge you've had, who would you pick? Based on the betting so far, there's really very little confidence in Weber. I mean, the odds say there's a 90% chance that the EPP will be the biggest group, but there's a 50% chance that Weber will be the next president, so that indicates that people aren't that confident. That so not many Bavarians have been putting their money down. No. <laughs> the big mover in terms of betting has been Barnier, who was 16 to 1, is now 6 to 1. Uh, Mark Rutter, we did add him a couple of weeks ago at 20 to 1. That is interesting. It could easily be somebody slightly unexpected like him, I imagine. Okay. But if I had to pick someone, I'll go for Barnier. Okay. Eleni? I think uh, as time goes by, I think that it's more possible for Weber to become the president. I mean, when he was first elected as a Spitzen candidate for APP, I was like, oh, okay, there's no way. There are going to be so many different things that will happen. But I don't see how, if APP is the first party, how they're going to not have him as a Spitzen candidate. He's the default, right? Someone I mean, has to unseat him. Exactly. So I, I see this procedure being pretty hard to happen. And I think the parliament is also going to resist and want to keep that power on their hands. And if he does quickly, does some deals and with the other two big parties, Alden, the, the socialist, maybe, I mean, he has uh, the power to do mm -hmm. so. Cornelius? Yeah, I agree uh, with you, actually, like over the trend. But if I need to put down money, maybe I'll talk to you, to you afterwards. <laughs> because then it, then it uh, would be Ruto Vestager, definitely. Okay. I, think, I think I actually really think that their chances are... Underrated. Now that, that is interesting that, yeah, so the, your I best mean, return would be if you wanted to risk 10, 10 euros. Mm. But <laughs> none of you said Timmermans. And that's interesting because he has a strategy kind of undefined, but it's a fairly obvious strategy. He needs to build a coalition of progressive parties. Technically, he'd be able to do it somehow. But none of you think that that is a likely scenario. I guess it's slightly more likely if 
the UK Labour Party win 25 seats or something, that slightly increases the bargaining power, mm-hmm. I imagine. Okay. Cornelius, how do you think polls are affected by the fact that most people don't really have any idea what the European parties are? So, you know, in a sense, yeah. maybe people are getting polled almost like in a national poll, even when they're being asked about the European Parliament elections. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I mean, but to be honest, I mean, the European Parliament election is basically a collection of 27 or maybe 28 national elections. And in some countries, even the polls don't even specify days. Like if there was an election this Sunday, that's like literally the question. And then they use that one as like the proxy for the European Parliament and translate it into seats. So that's like a big challenge. And that's all I think why... In some countries, we don't see a big difference between the, the voting intention by the people. But where we do see a big difference is in the turnout. If they actually ask, hey, if the European Parliament election was this Sunday, would you go and vote? And there we still see some pretty depressing numbers uh, like in the last time. Oh, now, well, maybe it's slightly off topic, but it reminds me of a question for you, Eleni. In Greece, you have compulsory voting, but only 60% of people vote. So on that question of turnout, I mean, what the hell's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no direct, like, you don't get a fine or punishment for not voting. It is compulsory, but you, you haven't heard of any case that you then go to vote and then said, there's a case against you. So, But I think in Greece, it's pretty high. The, the No, it's only 60. 60. I mean, yeah, compared I was to other when I read countries, it. I don't know how high it is. Yeah, I mean, it's higher than the average, yeah. but yeah. among compulsory voting countries, it's, it's, it's much low. lower than Belgium and Luxembourg. Yeah. Yeah, maybe this time around it will be different. Now, when I asked who had bet online before, I saw only male hands go up. Do you think that has some... I'm not saying that represents all betting online, but does it skew male? And does that somehow affect the outcome? Do you think that somehow shapes the discussion that you've kind of got men pushing it in one direction? Um, I actually think that's a great question. I mean, yes, betting is mostly a male activity in the UK and I would imagine in most other countries in Europe. It does worry me slightly when you look at an event like the EU referendum where there was a fairly significant gender difference in the way people were voting in that election. In, you know, women were more likely to vote Remain. And if the only people are betting are of one of those genders, then, yeah, sure, it's possible it could skew it. You know, we're not expecting the betting public to be a representative sample of the, the electorates. But, yeah, there is a small chance that because it's male, you know, I guess it's people with disposable income, that that could skew things a little bit. I do think, actually, that was one of the problems with the Brexit referendum. We'll continue the discussion after this message. The future of energy is underway today. Natural gas burns 50% cleaner than coal and power generation. So, while renewables grow into the largest source of global power over the next two decades, we have a cleaner way to back them up. At BP, we see possibilities everywhere. Maybe it's time to bring in audience Q&A. Hello. Yes. yes. There's been a lot of articles written about the impact of opinion polls on elections, but also on behaviour of politicians. Do you think that it's kind of... the it's switched now that so politicians are actually led by opinion polls rather than actually trying to shape opinion and then see that reflected in polls. And maybe a follow-up question for the gentleman from Ladbrokes. There was also a very interesting article written about the use of private polling around the referendum. I don't know if there's anything you can say. 
I think only informed readers of polls are also informed voters. And also, I rather think like if for example, it also helps to correct to a certain extent certain headlines. Like when, when Berlusconi was re-entering the race, um, there were headlines all over like Berlusconi's back in the race. Now that's going to change the election or the campaign. And then if people are able to go to our website and, and see, oh, well, Berlusconi is part of an 8% uh, party, then that rather helps them to put those headlines into perspective. Um, so, yeah, obviously I would defend polls strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's just on. follow up though. But I think one of the theories around the Brexit result was partly that people saw the polling the morning of the, the vote. Mm. as 55-45, if I remember rightly, for Remain. And there's evidence to show that a lot of people didn't bother voting because they thought it was already a done deal. Well, um, maybe that is a question I... about the laws around when polls can be published. Maybe that's an argument to say you shouldn't be able to publish a poll in the 72 yeah. hours before an election. Yeah, that's, that's maybe a discussion one could have. But I, um, like, if you go back to those polls, you did see that it's close, right? It was, it was within the margin of error. If there is like a one percentage point change and then it said, oh, it's completely new trend or something, which I often have to read in newspapers and then it's, I don't want to bash the media. Sorry, right? No, no, <laughs> but, no, no, but, go um, for it. Um, yeah. But I, is, I, is, I, is that I, a golden I, rule? Like if you don't see a jump of more yeah. than two or three percent, don't read too much into it? Is that something that's, that that's people should take away from this? And that's also something that we want to contribute with our website and also in the future work with, with Politico to make polling results better told, like better told and better interpreted and help readers to always have in the back of the mind, oh, there's always a margin of error. Really, that's really important to educate. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I take the point about private polling. On the day of the referendum uh, in 2016, the betting markets were saying there was a 75% chance Remain was going to win. By 10pm when the polls had closed, the betting markets were saying there was a 90% chance Remain was going to win before any single result had come through. And I think mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of suspicion, I have no evidence for it, that this was really based on private polls taken on the day, exit polls taken on the day, which, uh, from what one can make out, were predicting a fairly comfortable Remain win. Although mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that if you look back at the last month of that campaign, if you took an average of the polls, it was pretty much 50-50. And now there's mm-hmm. a, an idea that the polls were badly wrong in that election. Well, they, they weren't. They said it was going to be close. I think the betting markets were slightly less accurate in that particular yeah. occasion. And Eleni, is there an argument that people like us should ig- not ignore the polls, but... We should go with what we see and hear and feel. And the case I'll bring to the bear there is you look at all the polls in the 2016 US election, Hillary, 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 and if I look at everything I saw when I went to a campaign rally or the conventions, it didn't say Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. And I let myself believe things I might have wanted to believe. You're very right. And that's very hard to do, actually, because in the Greek uh, referendum as well, polls were saying it's going to be very close. It was a very big difference in the U.S. elections in Brexit. I mean, it seems like you should not hear, like you have to be, you know, the sirens, you have to close your ears and just follow your heart because you can understand. If you go out during a campaign, you can understand the feel of the people. You can see how much more dynamic one group or the other is and you can get a understanding, but it's hard not to listen to them as well. <laughs> There's also a lot of scientific research about that and over history and throughout time, polls missed parties and like the actual results by about two percentage points. And that's very, very, very consistent. Like over the last 50 years or something, one scientific paper compared all the latest polls with standard actual results. And on average, it's two percentage points that polls miss results. And if you 
keep that in mind, you won't be mm. yeah, always be less surprised. Yeah. Well, here, there's also the point, it's like another tangent of the private polling, which is that political parties use their own internal polling. And it's unlikely they would continue to invest in that if it wasn't telling them something they thought was useful. Like if they thought it was really terrible, they would just stop doing it, wouldn't they? Okay, well, he's not going to disagree with me, is he? <laughs> Time for another question from the audience. Hello. Uh, I wanted to ask you whether in polls you take into consideration social media, likes, followers, if this is part of a political assessment for journalists and the role that social media play actually in a campaign. Thank you. Eleni, maybe you can go first. I mean, I always check the followers and likes of certain tweets so I understand trends, but also it could be misleading as well because there's so much big part of the population who is not following that stuff and it's not tweeting actually, it might be following but not actually liking things. But you can definitely understand maybe a trend, not really what will happen, but maybe a, the way the debate goes. And that is always critical for me to check and see. But I guess that is one of the dangers, if I can jump in for a second, of the social media world that we're now living in. So that whole concept of the filter bubble that probably everyone's heard of now. But if you have algorithms just feeding you things that they think you want to see rather than what's yeah. really going on, you know, it's a pretty good golden rule in life as in journalism. Like you should be reading things that challenge you. So if you're not actively seeking out people that you might disagree with or publications that you might disagree with, then you're at risk of making a mistake, whether it's, you know, going to just one particular opinion poll or one particular newspaper. You've got to have that diversity of sources to get a really good grip on the situation. And don't overestimate social media use. Like, I mean, who's turning out? We see that consistently young people are not turning out in the numbers that more senior people do. It's true in the election and exit polls, and it's also true in current polling. Like if, for France, we see that like only 30% of under 30 uh, aged people plan to go and vote, but like mm -hmm. 60% of people over 60. And if you ask like, who's on social media, it's the other way around. So I think that has to be kept in mind as well. Mm -hmm. And are you confident, do you know enough about the individual polling practices and companies in Europe? to say that they take proper account of the way people can be reached and the way they communicate with people like polling companies? You know, if someone is just calling people on a landline now, yeah. that's that, pretty that, out of date, that, isn't it? I'm happy that hardly happens anymore. Like, mm -hmm. most companies have started to go on and do, like, a mix of online because it's, also because it's mm -hmm. cheaper and also cell phone polls. Yeah. And um, once again, that's a good thing about a poll of polls because if you have one poll that they only would take landline calls, which uh, they don't do anymore... And only one, only online polls, you reduce this systematic bias of like only using one method. So yeah. that's all exactly why one. Is, is there something like that at work, Matthew, in betting markets? If one of your rivals suddenly changes the odds on a candidate, do you freak out and think, oh my God, what's happened? We've got to change it? Or do you sit tight? and say, no, only when that Bavarian money comes in are going to change math <laughs> Well, you know, um, Labrox is part of a very large betting ecosystem with lots of different platforms all around the world uh, with all sorts of people betting into them. And although the UK is probably ahead of the game in terms of, you know, it's a very well-regulated country with very well-established operators, we've been doing this 60 years, we can't sort of stand outside of what the rest of the betting market thinks Otherwise, you open up kind of what you'd call arbitrage opportunities mm -hmm. and people who weren't interested in the result but could see just there being some inefficiency in the market would close those prices up anyway. So our opinion makes up some part of the odds, but a relatively small part, I guess. Mm -hmm. And have you ever been subject to that sort of industrial scale 
betting where someone tries to turn your market into like a financial market where they're where you ever felt like, hang on, someone's trying to rig this? Um, not really. I mean, it's hard for us to know the motivation of what people are doing when they're betting. We assume they're just betting because they think it's more like they like to win the bet. I think the worst suggestions around the EU referendum again, that the kind of link between the financial markets, where if you were buying or selling sterling in the run-up to that referendum, you were essentially placing a bet on what the result was going to be mm-hmm. and how they related to the betting markets and whether it was kind of tail wagging the dog situation where people were paying too much attention what the bookies were saying but again we don't really have enough evidence to say whether that really happened or not have you been running any bets on what's going on with the brexit day yeah we've got a lot of bets on well in particular whether there'll be a a uk participation in these elections Mm -hmm. which will create an awful lot of extra work for me but i'm 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 all in favor of it um yeah you can bet on whether there'll be another referendum that's only a 33% chance. Is there point. like a kind of exit date bingo, like where you run the odds on when they'll actually leave? <laughs> no, we don't have a price in that, but you can bet on... Oh, that's instance, crazy. Come on, come on. You can it's an easy bet, bet on when <laughs> Theresa May will end, end being Prime Minister, what month, what year, when there'll be a general election, all sorts of options, yeah. Okay, excellent. Eleni? For me, I mean, it's depending on the extension, it, my life will change in terms of reporting more months of the same saga. I mean, it's very hard for the Greek uh, audience because it's so technical, the talks. Very few people can follow it. And you always say, so there are two options, this and this, and then the next time you say two options, but they are different. So, I mean, people cannot really follow the story and uh, it will be hard to (laughs) keep the interest. Mm Yeah. I mean, I, I'll go back to the hotel and start uh, rewriting my code for, for our algorithm, again, with the UK. And, but yeah, I think just it's going to be a mess. Okay. I want to thank all of our panellists. Let's give them a round of applause. Thanks for enjoying another EU Confidential episode. We'll be back with the podcast panel next week to dissect Manfred Weber's pitch to voters. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Please take a minute to rate or review us. We'd love to improve and also spread the word to others who might enjoy this podcast. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. So my big thanks go to Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray for making this episode possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.